Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 155, the first episode of the new year, that being 2020. And not only is it a new year, but it's also a new decade. Well, to kick things off with this new decade, we have an amazing episode for you today that has everything a great Hollywood movie should have. A groundbreaking idea that changed our lives, a team of risk takers, the dramatic ups and downs of building a company to the point of potential failure, and of course, the heroic outcome. I'm talking about the story of E-Ink, and today my guest is Russ Wilcox, partner at Pillar. Russ is a venture capitalist these days, but he was a co-founder of E-Ink, and later on he led the company as its CEO and growth to $200 million in revenue. E-Ink commercialized electronic paper, which was invented at the MIT Media Lab, and was the technology that changed how we read, as it made the Amazon Kindle and lots of other devices a major success. Russ and I got deep into the weeds of this story, which is ultimately a 15-year journey that ended in a very successful acquisition. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Russ's background story, how E-Ink got started in the very early days of the company, the story of how the first launch of their product was a failure, but somehow this failed product ended up on Jeff Bezos' radar, scaling the company and what the Oprah effect can mean, why Russ decided to become a venture capitalist and all the details behind Pillar and the types of investments he is making, advice for founders who are looking to commercialize technology, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are planning on growing your employee headcount in 2020, then you need to consider adding a subscription to VentureFizz to help out with your hiring and employment branding strategy. Each subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and ongoing promotional support. It is a very cost-effective way to engage with our highly targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. To learn more, send an email to info at VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Russ. Russ, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. So I'm incredibly excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about a invention that came through Boston that when I think of Boston, there's so many great inventions that came through, but don't get the credit that the region deserves. Like I mean, I'm talking about things like the telephone, the first video game, the spreadsheet, email. These are all things that have connections to Boston that were invented, but people don't even like give credit where credit's due. So uh, E-Ink was one of these companies that just, you know, is such a great story. So we're going to talk all about that. But you know, before we get into that story, which is incredible, um, let's talk about, you know, this you deserve to take a year off after the E-Ink story. When we get into the weeds of that, people will understand. So you took a year off where you just traveled the world with your family and homeschooled your children during that time. So talk about that adventure because it sounded amazing. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's always interesting for people whose entrepreneurial journeys take a long time. You know, what is what is the arrange between you and your spouse that, that keeps the calm, keeps the right. peace? And my wife, Gina, really loved travel. She wanted to travel, but we really couldn't do that much while I was in the, in the thick of things. And so the deal was whenever we were done with E-Ink, uh, we would either, um, you know, get a, a tent and go camping or uh, we'd get a jet plane and go travel. But whatever we would do, we'd take some time and really just spend it together with our family, catching up and, uh, and seeing more of the world. So, um, so when we did uh, finally sell E-Ink, it, uh, it was time to do that. Um, I think the main thing, uh, you know, I took away from that is that you can leave everything you own behind and live out of a suitcase for a year and 
you're fine. It's great. You know, like as long as you're with your family, that's all you really need. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a great time. We, we went uh, to six different continents, went to 80 different cities. Um, I homeschooled my kids through fourth grade, seventh grade. They were still young enough that they didn't mind uh, too much being taken out of school. And um, so people always ask me two questions. One is, uh, where's a good place to go on vacation? And our answers are uh, Turkey, uh, Peru, Thailand. Japan's pretty awesome too. Those are some, some highlights. And then like, what did you take away from just traveling around the world for a while? Yeah. Um, and I kind of had like three observations or surprises from what I saw. Uh, one of which was that the world is getting polluted lots more quickly than we realize here in America. America's pretty, pretty, you know, uh, you know, has good trash collection. We have good waste treatment. Um, there's a lot of the world that's getting over polluted. Secondly, uh, there's a lot of the world where women are really treated as one level below uh, men. I mean, um, I, I'm sure in the U.S. we still have inequality, but boy, it's really extreme mm-hmm. in most of the world. Uh, so sort of the plight of women. And uh, the, the third thing is just corruption. And I was struck by no matter what country you go to, if you talk to a cab driver, how they'll tell you about the corruption in their government. And so it seems to be something everybody's kind of struggling with all around the world right now is this crisis of leadership. So we have ethical leaders who are really doing the right thing for the group, or are they just trying to get what's, what's there? So everybody's trying to struggle with that right now. Oh, that's crazy. Amazing experience. But yeah, it kind of opens your eyes to kind of what's, what else is going on in the world and how fortunate, you know, even though we have our own challenges, there's, uh, you know, so much amazing things that we do in this country. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, U.S. is only 4.7% of the U.S. of the world's population. So mm-hmm. 95% of the world's outside the U.S. A lot of people admire the U.S., would love to live in the U.S. We're very lucky to be here. Yeah. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Okay, well, um, I was a, a nerdy child. <laughs> My favorite thing was Star Trek. I wanted to be uh, Captain Kirk from the Starship Enterprise and travel around and go on adventures and meet uh, new people and, and new civilizations. Um, I was bookish, I did my work. I was computer programming at a young age. I spent a lot of time, I did program uh, basic and then assembly and you know Lisp and all these different uh, programming languages. What was the first computer you were using? I was TRS-80. Yep, yeah. So it's getting, it's not the very first, but I think I programmed in high school on a PDP-11, so that's punch cards. So yes, I still remember punch cards, uh, but it's just uh, at the tail end. Now you can almost like use your brain to program a computer, you know, so we'll be there soon. So then you, eventually you went to, to Harvard and you studied applied mathematics there. So what, what, you know, was that just a continuation of your interest of why you decided to, to study that? Yeah, so my story is sort of starting off very nerdy and kind of, slowly an arc towards more and more about people and eventually like sales mm-hmm. and, and business deals. So in college, you know, my dad had gone to MIT. Uh, my brother went to MIT. My aunt went to MIT. My uncle went to MIT. So I, I, I got to go to the liberal arts school, um, but I had to major in applied math for it to count to my family. And then I pretty much ignored most of my classes and I spent all my time in extracurriculars. 
Um, and I particularly like Model United Nations and Model Congress, which was, you know, about organizing people to talk passionately about different issues. And it was really about negotiation. And in the end, it was about persuasion and selling. And that, of course, as you know, is like a key, key skill for leadership and for change and for business. It sounds like that was a very like kind of like a defining part of of what you ended up doing, like kind of taught you those skills early on. Yeah, I think extracurriculars are are great for that. Okay, so after graduating, you go on to do pretty typical, you know, especially at that point in time, management consulting. So you were with CDI or Division of Oliver Wyman or one of the strategy consulting firms. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, I'll just say it's a classic thing to do. You're interested in business. You're not quite sure how to get started. Great introduction. Go a couple years of management consulting and then uh, get your MBA degree. So by the time you're done with that, you've seen, you've at least talked about any business topic or question, you've at least talked about once. So you can have an opinion. It might not be the right opinion, but you have, you can at least say something about anything. Okay, so after that, you decided to go back to B-School. So what triggered that decision to go to HBS? Yeah, um, well, my wife had been accepted and I knew there were a lot of guys there. And, uh, no, no, seriously. I was like, yeah, we weren't married at the time. I like, so I was like, okay, let's let's get married, and I'll, I'll go too. And um, you know, I think HBS is very good for training you to be a general manager. So it's good for leadership. Um, and while I was there, I became just taken with the notion of doing a startup and starting a company. And if you think about uh, what a startup is, it's it's a it's a bold adventure with a small team and your crew, and you're you're traveling to new places and doing new things. So it was just like Star Trek, and uh, that's what I wanted to do: high tech entrepreneurship. And that's was what you did right out of HBS, right? You worked at, at Pure Speech, which I'm assuming that was a startup, right? Yeah. So um, Bill Solomon, legendary business school professor. Um, sort of one of my mentors, and and I asked him, what do you know? I, I, if you've been a consultant, you don't actually know how to operate anything. So how do you get useful experience? And maybe it's too soon to just start your own thing right away. So you can join someone else's startup. Uh, uh, he knew Jamie Goldstein, one of his prior students, who uh, had co-founded Pure Speech. Mm-hmm. Pure Speech was kind of like Siri, but before artificial intelligence was very good, so it was not not very good, but it was the first beginnings of uh, continuous speech, natural recognition, natural speech recognition. And uh, so it was uh, maybe 30 people, had a couple of million dollars in funding, Paul Mater backed it. And um, I I spent two years there as a product manager. As a product manager, you get to learn a lot about how to design something and and how to recruit uh, and organize engineers. And uh, I didn't do it very well. I made lots of mistakes. It was very instructive. Uh, and at the end of two years, uh, you know, the, the company uh, had two different products. I was running one of them and we had to run out of cash. We had to shut down the product line I was running. Mm-hmm. So there I was two years out of business school, $80,000 in debt, no job, right? <laughs> but definitely bitten by the bug. And at that right. point, I thought, I've got to start something of my own uh, where I can have more say in, in what I'm doing. And uh, I started to network. To, figure out who I might be able to start something with. And that led to Ian. So how did, how did that actually happen? So, you know, uh, you, you connected with these people who are inventing something that was going to revolutionize the world. And, and, you know, we take for granted now, but at the time this was 
just a complete change. Yeah, well, all, all credit to Joe Jacobson. He's a, a professor at MIT. At the time, he had just finished his postdoc at Stanford and he'd been hired by MIT, but he, he still had the summer. And so he had this little free moment and uh, Joe went to the beach, which Joe doesn't recreate a lot, but he went to the beach, he finished reading his book. And this is like a horror, you're a professor, like what, what do I do, I finished my book. And he didn't have another book. So he wished he could just push a button and make the book be anything else, you know, and a completely rewritable book. And then he took out a pen and he started to invent how he could do that. And when he got to MIT Media Lab, he looked for bright young students who were too naive to realize this was a very, very, very hard problem and just willing to try it. And they went through, I think, you know, they had 18 different ideas of how to do it. And like idea seven worked like a charm and off they went. Okay, so when you connected with these folks that are, had developed this, like where, where was the product? I mean, because this is, you know, you're, you're digitizing books with a very thin display. And they just yeah. didn't exist then. So when I first met them, you would just see like one blotch of paint about the size of your thumb. And the paint would go from like light gray to dark gray. And there's like, look, we're going to change the world. <laughs> but you really had to have a lot of imagination. I mean, you, you couldn't even uh, have any information content. It was just a blob. Uh, but if you looked at it through a microscope, you could see all these tiny microcapsules, and inside the microcapsules were tiny bits of ink and paper, basically, little, little black particles, little white particles, and they would move around responsive to an electric field. And it was, it was like stepping into a snow globe when you looked at it through a microscope, and it just hit my heart, and in a very emotional way, I, I just like, this is it. This is so elegant and beautiful. I've gotta, I've gotta see if I can make this change publishing. I mean, publishing was multi-hundred billion dollar industry, but everything was on paper. It was all waste. It was all slow. You had to wait for the newspaper. This was going to be instant digital information, the entire Library of Congress in the palm of your hand. Uh, what a vision. And so I was, I was in. And for context, this is 1997, right? Yes. This is yeah. 22 years ago. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, so uh, nobody was ready for this. Consumers were not ready. Uh, manufacturing, right? Like, so, so how did you get started? Because what's fascinating about the story is the fact that it, the idea originated, you said with um, Joe Jacobson being at the beach, wishing he could have a book that could push a button that ended up being the product, you know? So that's rare that that actually happens, right? There's usually the pivot or like, we've, we've got great technology, but we're solving the wrong problem with it. Let's do something else. So anyway, yeah. so how did you start to build a company around that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, in this case, the vision was clear from day one, but the issue was it was such a, you know, Mount Olympus. It was so hard from where we were in 1997 that it was years away and we knew it was years away. And so I think the very interesting business challenge was how do you get there? You know, what are the base camps you're gonna stop at along the way? And we came up with this strategy of, we call it the one, two, three strategy. Number one, we'd make big chunky pixels for signs. Right. And that would be a product. And, and, and if we never succeeded at anything else but the signs, well, actually, signs is a good market. But then we would get, you know, uh, displays that were flat on glass that could hold pixels. So that would be like uh, like a normal computer monitor, but with paper like look. So that would be easy on the eyes and low power. And then after that, step three, 
we still haven't gotten to is uh, flexible. So in the end, we wanted to feel like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, where you could move big pages around. Um, that part of the vision turned out to be unnecessary. Everybody's very happy scrolling around on smaller screens today. Um, so, you know, it's not that we hit it exactly right, but we had a direction and uh, we were able to convince investors that if you back us just to get to the first step of signs, that will lead us towards something that's a big vision for later. And who were the early like um, investors? Like who were the ones that were like, this is a future, we're, we're gonna bet big on this? Yeah, so Yink was funded through a mix of VCs and strategics and the very, very beginning investors as three VCs who were pretty visionary. So we have Tom Grant from Applied Technology and Harry George from Solstice, Chris Spray from Atlas Venture Capital. Um, and and that's an interesting story. Like that, that was enough. We're just gonna start, we're gonna raise like a million and a half, 1.6 million. And that was about 1.4 million. And we need about 200K more. And the word got out to Dave Morgan from Motorola. And Dave was this very famous guy at Motorola. Lots of people knew him. He was embedded at the MIT Media Lab scouting. And I remember I went in to see Dave and uh, you know, sort of said, look, Motorola might have an interest in e-paper because you're all about wireless information, but that'll probably come later. There's no way Motorola can ever move fast enough to get on board with our seed round. And in the, in the background, I've been negotiating with Tom Grant on, on how to do the seed round. We were still some weeks away, but I'm like, this is closing really quickly. I, I don't think Motorola can ever move this fast. The next day, a FedEx envelope arrives on my desk. <laughs> I pull the, you know, the, the zip across the top. I pull it out. There is a piece of paper with two sentences on it that says, uh, Motorola is pleased to join your seed round. Please see attached. And then there's a check for $200,000. <laughs> so he had taken, preemptively taken the rest of the round. So, you know, Keith, what I should have done is like held that for the rest of the club. But what we did, we deposited that money. That was like three months of, of operating. <laughs> so we proceeded to take the next three months and, and work. And then we took that three months to like negotiate even higher, you know, terms on our seed round. So uh, I, I give a lot of credit to Dave Morgan from Motorola for really being our first uh, backer. That's amazing. That's a great story. So, so then eventually you raised, I think it was a $16 million round. Is that yeah. kind of the next round? Okay. So then that was obviously let's, you know, like at what point did you get to kind of like first iterations of a product that you could um, actually show somebody like, Hey, you know, you know, in business development, like you guys could have this. Yeah. Uh, right. It took about two years for people to like the look. So we had this like bad pixel. Within about two years, we had something that looked nice enough that people were like, yeah, I'd buy that in a sign. And then it took about another two years for us to figure out how to make it stable. So, you know, the very first prototype we built was like this big sign to advertise for sneakers. And we got it installed in a JCPenney store. And like the picture of this was on the front page of USA Today, you know, you know digital signage coming to the JCPenney near you. It's just was very neat technology, uh, but 90 days after we installed it, these big black blotches started to appear all over the side. Okay. It was horrible, and we had to rush it back to lab, and it turned out that um, there was something about the ultraviolet in the lights at JCPenney that was destroying our, our, our ink. So even though it looked good, it wasn't robust. And 
Uh, this is a kind of a classic mistake you make when you raise a lot of money and you don't have to actually ship anything. So we had done all this work inside the lab, but the lab didn't have any ultraviolet lights. So we were completely blissfully unaware of, our, so we hadn't really got it into the real world conditions. So then it took about another two years to uh, redesign all, everything so it would be robust. And then people were like, yep, I want to buy it. You can sell me one or two. Now I want to buy quantity. So then it took another two years to be able to manufacture it in high volume. So it took about six years to be able to just uh, ship anything in, in, that was really affordable for a mass market. How big was the, the JC Penny version? And how did you actually get the images onto those screens? Like the, you know, cause like computing was not, you know, just wireless and everything just through an easy to use interface, you know, I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you think of your, if you look at like an old style calculator, you see these little segments that make an eight or a seven or like think of an alarm clock. So we had very brilliantly designed uh, this group of segments that could trace out any alphanumeric letter. And then, so it was very, didn't need a lot of data. And we attached it to a Motorola pager and uh, because we'd received $5 million. And in the end, Motorola put more money and we received money from Motorola paging. And uh, so all this sign would hold is like, three lines of text and uh, but it would it hang from the ceiling it was it was maybe a yard wide by a yard wide it was it was pretty big size good size it looked really cool and we just paged a text to it and the text would show up with these alphanumeric segmented letters and uh, you know, when it wasn't turning black and blotchy it, it worked very well so when you walk by like a sufa sign you must be like i totally i know you guys are investors but like you must like know exactly oh i know how that that's engineered <laughs> yeah exactly it's how the very first venture investment i made was in sufa which is using e-ink signs to make these outdoor community bulletin boards and of course i love the notion uh and i know why they have a real edge versus all the other lcds and other kinds of display technologies um so i'm a big believer in sufa so, uh, you know, you went through the, the internet bubble burst, right? And you're still kind of coming to market with this. So how did you keep the company floating? Because you still weren't like mass producing these electronic displays. So, so how did you survive that time period? Yeah, so, uh, so this is like the, the, the remember the year 2000.com bust mm -hmm. uh, sort of the first capital market shock we hit. And um, we had raised about $108 million. We still hadn't shipped anything to the mass market. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and that, and uh, the, you know, this yeah. isn't, you know, companies burn through cash now, but that, that then, I mean, that was an incredible amount of venture funding. Incredible. Oh, I consider it a big accomplishment to burn $100 million. Uh, <laughs> I just wish I'd been wiser about how we did it. Um, and we had hired an, an outside CEO, a really good guy who had, who had helped manage the company. And when it became clear that we we're gonna have to do like a recap because the markets were collapsed and we needed cash, um, he resigned and I went from, I'd been like the original founder and then the VP of business development and then I moved into the CEO uh, slot at that time. So what I did was pretty, pretty strong medicine. I laid off, uh, nearly everybody on the senior team and sort of elevated the directors into senior management roles, downsized the company. Um, and I went back to the investors who had given us capital and said, listen, you put in a hundred, how about, how about, <laughs> how about 20, <laughs> you know, and about half of them said yes. So we had $10 million. 
And luckily for us, that was enough money. And the people that we had, we had, had elevated were, were actually close enough to what was really going on that we were able to solve our final uh, technical problems that we've been trying to resolve for a long time. And we licked them and we got shipping with an electronic book product. Um, so that was the beginning of the Sony, uh, Sony e-reader. So, and then that's when you finally were able to commercialize this technology. Like Sony was the first company that, you know, saw this and, and actually purchased it. Yeah. Uh, you know, having, sometimes having a trophy account is really great. It helps you pull through when, when you're years away from shipping and people could see, well, look, Sony is willing to, and this is the company that did the Walkman and, you know, they, they really, people really felt they could make the market if we could just provide the technology. So that helped us, uh, maintain investor confidence. And we had great partners from Motorola. We had Philips coming in as a partner um, and, uh, you know, um, Hearst Corporation, which, you know, obviously had a lot of content to provide. And mm -hmm. so there were a lot of people around the table. Um, and I think it's just really instructive that, you know, we need to get smaller before we could actually start shipping. Uh, because sometimes communication is such a key issue. And when you ramp very quickly and you have too much money to spend, you sort of end up with a little bit of a bloated corporation. So um, it's just part of the growing pains for us to, uh, to get back to basics. All right. So this is the part of the story that I find fascinating. So you ship, I think it was 3,000 units, and this was to the, to the Japan market. And there yeah, was, that's right. The first Sony ebook. And, and there was no appetite. Like, so all of a sudden, all these years, all this cash, incredible technology, and you're selling it to the Japanese market and there's no interest. So why, what was it about that market that they're like, nah, this isn't what we want? Yeah, well, I, I think the gen, this is the general case of if you're a startup and you're innovating, do you control the customer or do you pray that other people downstream of you will solve the problems? And in this case, we were relying on Sony downstream of us. Um, Sony, I mean, very smart corporation, but but unfortunately, the, this commercial strategy is fatally flawed. So that they they signed up ten publishers to supply ebooks, and they made each publisher agree to convert one hundred titles. So, whoever bought the first e-reader in Japan, there was only a thousand titles, and they were not like a thousand you know science fiction titles. They were a hundred science fiction, a hundred romance, a hundred Westerns, a mm. hundred politics. So there was literally no person on earth who was satisfied with this product, right. right? But they had sort of, from a market power point of view, we have 10 publishers, um, you know, contrast that a few years later when Jeff Bezos launched, he launched with millions of titles uh, right out of the gate. You know, he knew that to get that product, uh, to get that snowball rolling, he would have to solve the long tail problem. Uh, of having nearly any title right from day one. And it took him longer to launch his product than Sony, but what he did launch, much better. Okay, so you just gave kind of a little clue as to what we're going to talk about next. So what were you feeling at that point? Like, oh my God, this, you know, we were working so hard. We finally have Sony, the, the 800-pound gorilla. Now this product has failed in the Japanese market. But somehow, through some blessing, it ends up on the desk of Jeff Bezos. Right. So, you know, Sony only sold 3,000, but 20 of them were, it turned out to Amazon. And, and then they went to Jeff Bezos and they, he did something very smart, which is he said, I'm going to cannibalize myself because he was shipping physical books. Right. He's good. He said, I right, strategically, I'm going to be the one to figure out these digital books. 
And uh, I think even smarter, the way he did it is he started a whole new company in a different city. Oh. So he started a company a subsidiary, which was disguised called Lab 126, where the one's the A and the 26 is the Z. So Lab 126 was his subsidiary in, in San Francisco with a bunch of ex-Apple guys. Um, and so they just created this whole new thing. <clears throat> and most people at, at Amazon weren't aware of it until it, the day it launched. Um, so that- Did you get an inbound, like, did you get an inbound like phone call email from Jeff Bezos saying, hey Russ, I'm really interested in, in what you guys are doing? I think he went on a tour of the MIT Media Lab, and this is part of the magic of the MIT Media Lab, is they, they, get, they get a CEO or a government leader through three times a day. He came through, and um, he, I think the way it kicked off was that he saw Joe Jacobson and saw what Joe Jacobson was doing in his lab, said, whoa, 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 I've been looking for something that's paper-like, and that's how it started. That's amazing. Okay, so fast forward, they work on the Kindle, which that you know, made its mark. It changed how people read. And it just was a display that was very, you know, it was, it works, right. It was just a beautiful product and a great launch. Right. So, so what was that like? Like you're kind of working on this product that you kind of like probably saw that th this is, this is for real this time. Yeah. So, uh, clearly if you have Amazon as well as Sony still, Sony, was uh, doing version two and fixing their mistakes and they were launching in the US, not just Japan. And so we had a whole, and we had Samsung and LG sort of come in a year behind them. So we had a, a variety of customers. What it felt like um, at that point uh, was really a big race to, to, to scale. You know, it's hyper growth. So we went 4 million, 5 million, 9, 16, 40, like 200, you know, it was, it was, so imagine going from 16 to 160 million in, in 24 months. So it was all out battle to, um, to bring the company through multiple levels of um, new capabilities, different managers in and out, uh, different focus as a CEO, you know, your, your focus changes as the company grows. So there's a lot in there and a lot of lessons that came out of that. But the bottom line is uh, it felt crazy and, uh, and, I think we were too busy to really appreciate it um, for quite a long time. It, 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 was a, it was a great result and very gratifying. Like if you go on an, on an airplane and you see people there with their Kindles, that, that's a hugely satisfying moment for me. I mean, yeah, I mean, you had Oprah, right? Like saying, you know, my favorite things list, the Kindle. Yeah. So, you know, very lucky that Jeff Bezos liked this product. Uh, he liked it personally and he put it on the front page of Amazon. And then it turned out he had his friend named Oprah and she put it and said it was one of her favorite new objects. And so the, the week after Oprah aired and said she, the Kindle was her uh, new favorite thing. Um, I think sales spiked 40x. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? That's the Oprah effect. Um, so you can imagine uh, the visits we're getting from Amazon. And, and, and Keith, they were not like, we're happy. No. They were like, you're too expensive. Uh, we need 10 times capacity. Uh, you know, your quality has to be like, these people are very serious people. They only care about things they can do at high, high scale. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was a battle to keep up with, it was one customer, right? Driving so much of the growth and it was just a battle to keep up with this very demanding customer for quite, quite a number of years. 
and, and it was other companies were still, you said Sony and like Barnes and Noble was using it too, right? For their Nook and yeah. other. So I, what I really wanted was to have no more than half the business be reliant on Amazon, but they kept growing so fast. So we were running all around the world, trying to get other people to start their own eBooks. And yes, Barnes and Noble did, as I said, Samsung, LG, a bunch of people did. Um, we also did things in cell phones with Motorola and um, Hitachi, and um, we eventually also got into electronic shelf price labels, so that came a little later. So we tried to fill in, um, and it was hard to do that. But um, you know, today, if you look at the, the e-ink uh, revenues, and e-ink still going strong today, um, I think they actually sell, sell more electronic shelf price labels than e-books. Hmm. Um, because it, I think it's maybe a hundred million eBooks that we've shipped so far, uh, all manufactured here in Mass in our e-ink plant in Massachusetts for the screen technology. So there, um, I didn't know that it was manufactured. Yeah. Wow! And all of the the way ink is made is we make this special ink that can change color, and then we coat it down a sheet, and we make that into like a sticker, and then we mail it to Asia, and they stick it onto the circuit board, and so. Uh, we use like X Polaroid talent from Boston to make this roll to roll processing plant. And we set it up in Western Massachusetts. Um, and from there, we've done over a hundred million displays so far just for eBooks. And I'm sure we're now many, many, many millions of electronic shelf price labels as well. So what did you have for competition? Like, I mean, this is a hard to build type of product. It took you years to develop yet. Once you kind of go to market, there must've been some me too copycat type of companies with oh we can do that too or was it you were so defensible on how complex it was yeah so the, i mean first thing ethan I mean, we 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 poured a lot of energy into building an ip fortress sure um i think we had 200 issued patents and we now have to 600 patents lots of ip mm -hmm. uh second we had a lot of copycats or people try and so um, actually it was really frightening because the governments of Japan and Taiwan and, uh, decided that e-paper was a potential threat to the billions that they have spent in LCDs. So the government of Japan like gave $25 million of free R&D money to anybody who wanted to compete with us. And the government of Taiwan gave 10 million. So it was E-Ink, you know, our sturdy MIT, E-Ink against the governments of these uh, foreign powers that were interested in industrial policy. Uh, we had people come to our office and pose as reporters who were actually there trying to interview our scientists to find out what chemicals they'd used. We had wow. people going through our trash. Um, we had, we had a, a university in China that uh, hired away one of our Chinese uh, scientists, gave him a full professorship and a complete research team, and uh, paid him to try to replicate what we were doing. We also had a bunch of VCs backing rival technologies that looked like, well, we could maybe do something like this, but try to get around their patents. So we had four or five, you know, straight out uh, rivals. So um, we survived a lot uh, of assaults on the core technology. And I'm just always very thankful that um, my co-founders, Joe Jacobson, Barrett Comiskey, and J.D. Albert, um, are, are truly brilliant people. And they picked the right horse to ride. Um, and I, you know, this was the, not only do they own a lot of those patents, but they're just inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame uh, in the last year. I mean, there's only 600 Americans in history who have been part of this, and the, and the three of them were inducted. So they were just brilliant, and um, we had a great technology.
Yeah, I, it's you know, so I'm just reflecting like um, you know, it's it's success stories like this, the trials and tribulation. It's like it's a great, I think, Hollywood success story that they should make movies out of versus what they tend to do of the you know massive destruction type of movie like I, what's making me think of this is you know dan premack from axios in his email today he's like you know talking about how uh the WeWork stories already has like two things you know two movies that are going movies. to be made and who's playing yeah. the, so i'm like you know like i wish hollywood would lean in on lean in on a story like e-yank that has the ups and downs and the the triumph at the end you know, it's, it would be a much more interesting story, in my opinion. But that's Hollywood. Well, thank you. I I love to I'd love to see that movie. That would be a lot of fun. We'll have to figure out who will play you. I, I think Matthew Broderick is. Uh, that would be a good one. Is the, is the one that that I think would be a lot of fun. <laughs> now, so and it did lead to an acquisition. So uh, PVI was the acquirer, and it was you know close to a half a billion dollars. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's so much story there, and I fear we don't have time to go through all of it, but. Uh, we, in 2008, we'd reached the $40 million mark and we broke even. So imagine you've lost money for 12 years in a row. Okay? <laughs> you break even. The champagne and the board's comment at that point was sort of like, great, sell this thing. It's been so long. <laughs> we need cash. <laughs> we need, yeah, we need that cash. So I ran around to try to sell it. Um, and and we put together a whole book and we went out with Thomas Wiesel and we had a bunch, several bidders um, express interest, probably to buy it sort of, you know, in the $200 million range. All the bids were due on September 17th, 2008. Uh, on September 16th, 2008, uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so the markets collapsed and as a consequence, nobody, nobody uh, showed up to actually give us an offer. And um, we were in, in desperate straits because we had a, a big debt, piece of debt due. And we had to sell, we had, or we had to get a pile of financing. And the, and the markets just completely seized up tight. There's no liquidity anywhere. And I really thought after all that, we're gonna you know, lose, lose half the company. Um, and it was, it was tough times. We eventually worked a deal with our supplier or, or our vendor. So downstream of us, the sticker would go to this, these guys in, in Taiwan called PrimeView. And they would put it on mid display, sell the display to Amazon. So they were in the middle of the supply chain. They could see the sales going like this. And they were a publicly traded Taiwanese company. And the only market in the world that was still liquid was Taiwan because they have a lot of capital controls to protect themselves from their neighbor, China. So it was like the only good island in the middle of this global contagion. Uh, and so we worked to deal with them where they lent us some money in return for the right to buy us for $200 million. We signed the deal. That saved the company. We then had like a period to, to close the deal. During that time, the Oprah thing hit, like all this, all this revenue started to boom in. We go from 40 million, 200 million, and a $200 million exit looks terrible. So the shareholders leaked a story to the Boston Globe saying they were going to refuse to send in their share certificate, certificates <laughs> because it was such a bad price. Now we're contractually obligated, but my shareholders revolted. And this was a big problem because the day after they announced the sale, the guys in Taiwan had seen a $1 billion market cap increase. They said, we're gonna buy for 200, they go up a billion on top of that. So they were gonna get hit with a lot of shareholder lawsuits. They flew out and there's a long talk and they upped the price to 480. And mm -hmm. uh, the investors the agreed, that was the end of that. 
And after the deal closed, they went up another billion after that. So uh, it was a, it was a been a great deal for everybody involved, and uh, they're happy. They're still operating it. I think I want to say more than half the people at Inc are still there ten years later. Like it's a great culture, a great group of people. Uh, they really enjoy what they do, and it's it's a good business. So. That's such an awesome story though. Like, like, I can only imagine like your like schedule, like what it looked like every day because like, you were juggling so many different things in different periods of the company. So, but anyways, I could talk about Yang for longer, but let's, so let's talk about what you, so you just, you went for your, you know, you went around the world with your family and then you came yes. back and then, you know, now you're a venture capitalist. So you're a partner at Pillar. So, so why'd you decide to become a VC? Yeah. So, you know, um, after selling Inc, it was like, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, and I tried for about five years to help other scientists do other very impressive things. One was a clean tech, one was a cure for cancer. I learned a lot about those different fields, start two more companies. Um, and, but each time you do a science-based company, you sort of at risk. Maybe the science works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, and so those have been up and running, but it was time to do the fourth thing. And at that point, this is 2016, I ran into Jamie Goldstein. And if you remember, the, the first little thing I did at his school was a speech recognition where I worked with this fellow MBA. His name is Jamie Goldstein. He's very uh, smart and successful venture capitalist at Northbridge, had spun out to start his own firm, which is Pillar. He's just getting off the ground. So I went to sit with him and look at deals. And after a couple of months of that, I was really enjoying the looking at the deals. Uh, and uh, we agreed that we should, we should join forces and I uh, should do become a VC. So, so why become a VC as a lot, if you talk to, I know you can talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, I, I guess I'm probably not the only entrepreneur who really did not like VCs at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd spent a lot of time saying those guys, you know, they're arrogant. They, uh, they, they think they own me. They, they want to tell me what to do. They don't really understand my business. Um, they make me like beg for capital. And so, uh, really the last thing I thought I would do was become a venture capitalist. But, um, you know, I sort of had reached that point in my life where I thought, what really drives me now is how can I serve my community? And I thought the thing I could do best was do what I knew, which was to help people start companies. So this was a way to do that at some scale with some leverage across many things in parallel. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I really thought, I think VC done properly, Keith, is a service job. It should be in the service of the entrepreneur. It should be helping the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so Jamie said, I want to build Pillar to be different. I want it to be, uh, you know, his phrase is, VC doesn't have to be the dark side. So our goal is, how can I have a VC firm where the VCs are more like side by side with you in the trenches as opposed to like hovering over? And so this was all, Pillar is purpose-built to do exactly that. I mean, the original LPs are other entrepreneurs. So it's the founders of other unicorns in Boston, TripAdvisor, Wayfair, DraftKings, Netiza, Fuse, uh, Exact, and lots of different, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of exits. The, that talent trying to create the next set of Pillar companies in Boston. And then um, our thought was, look, Let's not have all the legal mumbo jumbo. We're going to have a one page term sheet, totally simple, just the key terms and the rest will all be standard off the shelf legal. If the, if we lead, we offer to buy common stock 
that's the same stock as the founder zones or exactly the same level in the cap table uh, because we're either going to win big together or we're not going to win yeah and then we thought this firm's going to be deep on services so uh half of what we do is after the check clears so we've got um you know uh which is run by my partner sarah we've got uh, a platform team that has someone full-time devoted to helping hire and fill open positions someone full-time devoted to events and community we've got these 22 ceos from boston who built unicorns and are there to mentor you we've got founder guides and a whole roster of experts to leap in to help you when you need it uh, so we're really focused on providing service to people now the trade-off is we can't do that across the country we can't do that at all scales so pillar is a hyper-focused fund we only invest in boston companies we only invest in seed stage so uh that's an incredibly narrow lens but for that we think we do really well so what are you what are you targeting like what um what types of companies are you are you ideally you know searching for to to invest in yeah so um okay that boston and seed is pretty specific so within that we'll look at anything okay. for me personally uh I, I am really interested in like the interfaces of things i think that's where a lot of value gets created so what i mean by that um like not just ai computation but applying ai to the physical world so it's the blending of, of bits and um atoms okay smashing those two getting those two things to work together so that can be things like um 3d printing it can be robotics it can be uh you know physical world controlled by digital model and then um another area that's interesting to us is uh, biology advances that are enabled by computation. So the, the blending of biology and computers to get into new fields and open up new, so that can be synthetic biology. Uh, it can be healthcare. There's a lot of very interesting digital healthcare that it's, uh, attracts us. So um, I look for interfaces and I look for innovation. It's gotta be something which is either a new technology, like a patentable new technology or a totally new business model that hasn't been done before. So. Boston, anything that's invented in Boston, new business, new technology, we will put everything around you to help you build a business. You don't have to be a complete team. You can just be an inventor. 15 of things we've done have been spin outs from MIT or Harvard. Um, we will help you build a business, but it's got to be a pretty bold and ambitious idea that's innovative. And what's the best way to, to get on your radar? And like, if I do, you know, land a meeting with you, like, what do you expect out of that first meeting? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I try to be easy to reach. I'm Russ at pillar.bc. Send me an email, no problem. But please, it's got to be C stage or earlier. It can't be too early, but it can't be past C stage. And it's got to be in Boston, and it's got to be innovative. And it's those three things I'm, I'm very happy to, to look at it. I like people to send me a deck if they can or any information, because that way I'll, it just saves time for both of us if I say, nope, that's not interesting, or if I come walk into the meeting more prepared. What I'm doing in the meeting, so I'm asking a bunch of VC questions. How are you gonna build a hit product? Who will buy it and why? Can you make money? How many can you sell? <laughs> if you're very successful, how do you protect the profits? So I ask those five questions every single time. 
there's no mystery. We put out a template here. <laughs> bring, 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 here's the template to use. And so I'm, I'm asking easy. those questions. I, one thing I, I didn't realize in BC, I sort of thought venture capital was a lot about like analyzing the answer to those questions. Actually, what I've discovered is you pretty much know the answer to those five questions within about five minutes. Mm -hmm. So, so why do I take a full hour with everybody? I, 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 and I, I don't see, I don't, I don't go for these thirty minutes. Like I take an hour. If I'm going to see you, I'll take an hour. And I'm asking those questions and I'm exploring them with you. But mostly, what I'm trying to do is figure out who is the human being on the other side of the table, and is this person like, do they have the drive? Do they have the commitment? Do they have the charisma to persuade others? Do they have good business judgment? You know. And I'm really, Keith, I'm really looking for, is this person passionately devoted to self-improvement? It's so important because as each chapter of the company goes by, it's a different job. And so you've got to be a hyper learning machine. You've got to constantly want to become a better version of yourself. You know, like, so I'm looking at these people like they're often reading new books. If you ask them, like, what did you learn last month? They'll tell you three things. Whereas, you know, not just like, well, I, I've spent 20 years, you know, it's, it's people who are just hyper learners. So anyway, I'm, I try to judge them on personal characteristics while asking questions about the business. I try to see if, if, if it might be a great business, but do we have a personal chemistry? Are we going to get along? Because it's a lot of stress ahead. Are we going to be able to, to work together without tearing each other apart? And, uh, you know, if all of that looks good, then whatever the open questions are is the diligence. And then there's, they get a chance to meet the rest of our partners, see if there's that same chemistry with all of them. And, and then if all goes well, we'll offer them a term sheet and, and off we go. So I'm sure you come across entrepreneurs that are, you know, interested in commercializing technology. Mm. Like, so what advice do you give to, to the founders along those lines? So uh, I think the two pieces of advice. One is, if you are trying to, when you say commercializing technology, let's say it's frontier technology, and you know there's some time between starting a company and selling, right? maybe it's two years or something like that. I would say the more technical risk, the more uh, the less market risk you can tolerate. So my advice is, if you're going to go for a new technology, you have to find a really, not even arguably huge market. So that's clear, if you succeed on technical risk, you're definitely gonna have something valuable. So for example, there's a ton of risk to develop cures for cancer. I wanna say 95% of the time it doesn't work. Why do people keep funding them? Well, it's pretty clear that if you cure cancer, you're gonna make billions of dollars. Right? So you have to have very clear marketing win if the technology hurdle is steep. But my other piece of advice is um, in the early going, before your technology is fully baked, let's say it's half baked, to resist like mad the pressure from your investors, not me, but your other investors, your pressure to get revenue. Revenue is the enemy because the minute you start trying to ship a half baked product, you've got to bring on a sales force and it doesn't really work very well. So you actually need a field support source and it, now you've got a quota and you've got to hit you. Oh, you have to show every quarter that it's growing and you're on this treadmill. And, you need none of that. You just need to stay quiet, stay calm, take three to 10 customers, make them extremely happy, let the product simmer long enough until you've got a hit product. Now you had a hit product, then raise the capital and grow, but avoid revenue until after you have a hit product. 
Now, what about, you know, you, you have technology and, you know, e-ink was so unique that you kind of had this mission and you followed it through. Did you ever have, um, you know, maybe investors or just other people who are smart, they are giving you advice that, hey, that's the wrong market. That's never going to happen. You should apply that technology. I think it would be a great idea to do it in X. So, you know, I'm sure entrepreneurs struggle with that market fit and staying the course because they're too early. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a big part of the entrepreneurial struggle. And um, it's always like, do I have the right market? Do I have the right product? And, and if pivoting, you know, like if I don't, if I have a good product, but it's not selling it to the right person, can I pivot to a different market? Um, I think there's another really interesting pattern I see a lot, which is, should I be a full stack product or should I be a platform? You know, um, you can, you can, you can sell cars or you can uh, run an Uber, you know, and, and use cars. And, and so when you develop a core technology, you can, you can make your stack higher and higher and, and narrow and narrow to a specific product, or do you try to be broad? So anyway, it's kind of an abstract idea, but I see a lot of companies struggling with that. And the problem is if you're a platform, platform's attractive because it lets you serve a lot of markets simultaneously. The problem with it is, um, there's so many different directions you can run in. So at the early days of e-ink, we used to charge our board uh, of directors $50 fine every time you came up with a new idea. <laughs> stop, stop coming up with different things. We can, it's a display technology. You can display, of course, you can do bumper stickers and t-shirts and you know, like, yes, we get that. We just need to do one thing, you know? So pick your one thing. Your job as the CEO is to pick the one thing that is just big enough that your business could reach break even if that's all you ever did. Right. Pick the one thing, keep it in the lab and, and, and don't spend money on marketing until you've really got a hit product for that one thing. And then, you know, scale. So what do you uh, what do you like to do outside of work these days? Uh, well, so, um, you know, I really enjoy this. So, so I do. I, I don't know what you call it work. It's a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, what I do to decompress for me, is like long walks or music. Um, conversation, dinners with friends, travel, my, my, uh, my one, so we're full circle back to travel. So my one travel <laughs> since the trip around the world is this uh, festival in Edinburgh, which I love called the Edinburgh Fringe. And uh, what happens is that, you know, city of Edinburgh is like cold and chilly all year round, but during the month of August, it's really nice. And so they have a big theater festival and 300,000 people come and they will do 3,000 different shows each show presents once a day and so they have hundreds of theaters around the city and literally there are 50,000 performances in the space of three weeks wow. you can go and you can see at one o'clock uh, you can watch opera at two o'clock some mime at three o'clock a jazz at four o'clock is Shakespeare I mean it's a tremendous smorgasbord of people who are in it just because they love to be actors and thespians. And it's it's all very homespun, very real. Your nose to nose with the actors. Uh, so that's my Edinburgh Fringe, my favorite time of the year. That sounds amazing. Well, Russ, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through uh, your background, you know, the great story of E-Ink that I think, again, should be made into a, a movie because I think it's a very interesting story with all the nooks and crannies that you'd want. Uh, and of course, you know, all the great work that Pillar's doing and, and what you're doing as a VC. Well, Keith, thank you. And uh, I've been following VentureFizz for a long time. Love it. 
I think you do a tremendous service because everybody needs to understand what's happening, what's happening out there. And you are helping people understand what is going on, who's doing who, who's doing well, what have they learned, what are the lessons. So enormously, journalists like you are enormously valuable. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.